Good afternoon. Welcome to Tuesday. Mackling and McGarry on 680 CJOB. I am Brett McGarry. Greg Mackling is my co-host. And today we have more stuff to give away. Not right now. We're not giving anything away right now. Don't call yet. Later on this afternoon, we have more tickets to give away for Age of Electric. They are playing Thursday, April 6th at Canadians Transcona at Nashville. So we have more tickets to give away for that. Also around 210-ish, approximately, somewhere in that general vicinity of that 2 to 2.30 p.m. half hour, we will do the U2. We'll find another qualifier. Hopefully, we will call out the name of a potential qualifier. And if that qualifier calls in, then they are in for the big draw happening on Friday. So wait for that at around 2.10. I haven't checked with the powers that be lately on this one, Brett. Mm-hmm. But at last report, Mackling and McGarry listeners. Yep. Top qualifiers so far. Oh, more. Most, most number of qualifiers <laughs> of of all the shows, all the day parts, as we call it in the business. So keep it up. Keep our lucky streak going. So if I were to put this into uh, terms of it's a sporting terms, Greg. Yes, we would, would be in first place. Would, 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 like in terms of a draft lottery, would we be? Would we have the best chances of winning said lottery? I think that's a very good way of putting it. We are, are we're the front runners for Austin Matthews at this point in time. <laughs> if we're going back 365 days, okay. So hopefully we can qualify another person for the big draw happening on Friday. Uh, but right now, Greg, we want to talk about wait times. Yeah, wait times. We want to open the phone lines to you, 204-780-6868, the CIHI, Canadian Institute Institute for Health Information, releasing this uh, wait time report, as they do at least once a year. And Manitoba still sort of hanging around just below the middle, less than average, kind of like our hockey team. And so (laughs) some people are worked up about this. Because they see that certain medical procedures are not happening in the timely fashion, A, that the benchmark would suggest and uh, looks for provinces to meet, uh, but whether or not some of these things could be categorized as as elective or not. Because I think that that's part of the discussion, right? Like cataract, if you've got cataracts... It doesn't seem like elective surgery in yeah, any way, right? It seems like you, that's something you need to have. It seems to be pretty important. And I think what we, on the outside, if you're not waiting for a surgery or a family member isn't waiting for a surgery or procedure or diagnostic test, from the outside, some of these numbers might seem reasonable. From the outside, some of them seem unreasonable. But if you're in the middle of it, I think... Just about all of them seem unreasonable, except for if you've got a fractured hip, it looks like we're doing really well. Manitoba does really well for hip fracture repair. 91% of Manitobans have had surgery to repair the fracture within 48 hours. I don't know how much better you can do than that. I guess 100% within 48 hours, but 91% in 48 hours, that seems like a good number to me. Was there anything that jumped out at you in the report that had you going, gee whiz, you know, we've got to get so much better at this stuff? Uh, For me, it ends up sort of being this general gloss um, that wait times are bad. 
wait times are bad. And every, that's what that's my reaction every time I see these reports. So I wish I could offer more, but it just kinds of end up, yeah, it's par I think, for the course. I think that's the general interpretation, the general feeling, right? Is that we're not getting the services that we expect, but are we re- being reasonable about what we should expect and about what we're getting based on the public system? And this inevitably, as you walked in on this morning in our newsroom, it creates conversations, concerns, and musings about creating a private system or a a partially private system. And I think a lot of people don't realize how much of the healthcare system is already privatized. Most of the rectory clinics that you'll ever go to, if they're not in a hospital, they're a private clinic. If you're getting your blood work done and it's not in a hospital, it's going to a central location that's privately run, privately owned. Uh, There's the Maple Surgical Center. One of my boys has had surgery twice there, and that takes a lot of pressure off of things at Children's Hospital for minor surgeries like tonsils and adenoids and these sort of things where they only use the surgical room, the, the, the ER, or the operating room, pardon me, for... 15 minutes, really? The kids are in there and they're kind of in and out. So there have been unique ways at correcting and changing the system and hopefully making wait times shorter, making the system more efficient. But I think a lot of people have the interpretation, the feeling that we need to do more and we need to do better. And our colleague Tristan Field-Jones was criticizing me because... You know, I think, you know, he strongly believes that we need a private, more private options. And I understand that feeling, but there is a private option. And we live right next to the country on the planet that, A, spends more money than any other per capita on health care. And in some cases, you can go and have a private MRI or CAT scan done. Two-hour drive, Grafton, North Dakota. You have one of the world's greatest hospitals in Rochester, Minnesota. And if you can't wait, there is an option to pay outside the system. It may not be our system, but they're not going to turn you away. They're not going to turn down your money. Mm-hmm. So that seems like a sacrilegious thing for a lot of people to suggest in this country, right? Yes. That the notion of introducing a, a private option is somehow going to take away from the system. I don't know if it's the fear that, well, then the best doctors are all going to flee to private practice. I don't know. I, When I just sort of quickly think about it, it seems to me if there was a private option introduced, that would free up space in the public system. And they could still make provide incentives to ensure that good doctors remain in public health care. But that's just my sort of knee-jerk reaction. I, too, I think I, I don't have a problem with that. If somebody has the money to pay for it and they want to pay for it, let them pay for it, and then that'll free it up for people who can't afford to pay for it. Yeah. The, you know, I, I really on the fence with this one because there are only so many human resources. We already import emergency room doctors from all over the planet because we have a severe shortage in particular in in rural parts of Canada. We have a severe shortage of frontline doctors, just your regular physician. 
You know, a family doctor is something that a lot of people can't find. If you think you're having a hard time finding one in Winnipeg, try living in Thompson or Dauphin or Brandon or Minnedosa. Um, there are communities that share family doctors amongst you know, communities of 2,000 or so and different regions that have to share these resources, it's very difficult. It's very difficult to recruit people outside the major cities of, of Canada. And then you've got competing cities for this talent. And then you're competing with the United States because I know lots of medical professionals that once they're graduated, they do go south because there is a second system. There is a, it's all private down there. And that's the way they want to maximize their education. It's an education that we've subsidized gigantically as taxpayers as well. So there's a whole lot of questions and answers that go with very simply saying, well, let's add a private option. Well, that's all well and good in theory. But how do you practically put that out? And how do you practically implement it without taking multiple resources away from the public system that a lot of people cherish as Canadians. We don't have to check our wallet to make sure we've got a zero balance on our visa when we go to emergency room. We don't have to phone our insurance company to make sure that our premiums are paid off and that we can say yes to certain diagnostic tests because they are or aren't covered within the insurance that we have. It's pretty much carefree, right? You go and you expect once a doctor writes a prescription for a certain test or diagnostic service that you're going to get it in a timely fashion. And I think that's where it falls down for a lot of people is that that test, that diagnostic, whether it be an MRI, CT scan, whether it is to see a specialist, for a lot of people, it feels like a far too long to wait for that next stage of care. And, and, and I sympathize with a lot of people. But if time is something that you feel you can't, you can't afford, to suggest that the options don't exist, I think, is a little bit disingenuine because they do exist. And they're expensive. And they're a, a day trip away in North Dakota, in Minnesota, if you really feel as though that's the only option that works for you. Is it a little cold-hearted? I don't know. But the option does exist. 204-780-6868. Your thoughts on the latest uh, what wait time report from Kaihai, the Canadian Institute for Health Information, and your thoughts on what Greg was just talking about, private, public mix, or should it stay public? We're getting some text messages already at 204-780-6868, and we would love to hear your thoughts at that same phone number. Provided you are can do so safely. You're not at the wheel, for example. 204-780-6868 is the number to call. It's the number to text. Mackling and McGarry, your forecast is up next. I know I don't have to say plus. Just five. Five glorious degrees outside 680 CJOB. It's still fun to say, though, after saying minus for so long. Thank you for backing me up on that. <laughs> Every so often, it's just nice to kind of reinforce that. that yes, it's plus five. Yes, yes, yes. Uh, We're talking about wait times versus the national average here in Manitoba. A variety of diagnostic 
tests and medical procedures on the list in a report from the Canadian Institute for Health Information. And it shows that in 2016, 66% of patients waiting for hip replacement met the benchmark of about six months, which uh, clinical evidence shows is the appropriate amount of time. That's up from 56% in 2012 here in Manitoba. Uh, The numbers have gotten better in some accounts and gotten worse on others and we're trying to figure out what is the solution to this ultimately. Do we need a second tier of healthcare? Do we need more options? Or do we just need to, you know, manage the resources we have better? And do we just need to live with this because some of these things aren't necessarily life threatening. They are things that uh, it would be great to have them fixed now, but because of the system we're in, it's impossible to do everything on demand. Dave is at 204-780-6868. Hey, Dave, what do you have to say about this? Well, people are forgetting one thing. You're saying that a lot of the doctors after they graduate want to go down to the States. Now, if they had the option here in Manitoba where they can privatize a lot more, where they can make more money, their incentive to go to the States decreases. They would actually stay here, which would mean that we would get way more doctors in Manitoba. And there's no reason to have... Uh, the MRI, you could get that. A doctor could be a thousand miles away and look at the scans and figure out what's going on. You don't even need a doctor in Manitoba nowadays for MRI. That's an interesting. But the I machines, never thought about that. the machines are six right? million. But the machines are six million dollars a piece, well, Dave. That, why don't they privatize that and let the private companies pay for that? Who's going to pay for it, Dave? Who's who's? You want to tell me how? I guarantee you, there would be doctors that would be lining up to buy, open up their own private clinic right. for MRIs because they know they could make the money on that. Okay, and so it would be probably cheaper than what the government can do when they have all the unions in there. Okay, so Dave, let me ask you the question: Who, the, who then pays for the MRI? Dave, Dave has a bad knee and decides I'm not waiting any longer on this public system. Who's going to pay? You're going to pay $1,500 for an MRI out of your pocket? It still would be cheaper for me to pay it here in Winnipeg than have to pay it in American funds going down to Grand Forks to spend a day going down there. You would pay it, though, Dave? Out of Why your pocket? If, if I've, I've been waiting. I have my, my wrist has been sore for over two years. I got my doctor to get, a, get me in for a CT scan. It's been over a year, and I haven't even received a letter from the CT place yet because it's not a high priority. But it's a high priority for you. Well, my wrist is killing me. So then why don't you go to Grafton, North Dakota? You can be there and back in a day, and because you'll know what's wrong with your wrist. Said, my doctor said, oh, it'll be three, four months. you receive a letter. Once you receive the letter, you know when the date is. I still haven't received a letter. Dave, have you so, been able to reach yeah. out to the doctor to find out what's going on? Well, I'm going to do it now soon to find out. If he hasn't done it, then I'll have to do another option. Right. Okay. Thank you, Dave. I appreciate that. And I just, I'm trying to play this out in real life terms. More doctors staying, if they have the ability to do what they need to do properly on their own. All the doctors are private anyways, anyways. It's their own business. But if they have the ability for, to me, I understand a high cost for surgery and stuff like that. But you know what? $1,500 for uh, MRI. And I guarantee you could even lower it if it was privatized. Thanks, Dave. Appreciate your insight. Appreciate the call very much at 204-780-6868. Got an email here at brett at cjob.com from Diane, who says, if our resources were working at max capacity, I would say no to private clinics. However, we have physicians who say they could do more surgeries, but they are only allowed so many 
procedures. The procedures are being rationed. I would suspect that we would attract and retain more specialists if they were allowed to function in a blended system. Once they complete their rationed number of procedures, let them charge for procedures. Charge PST on the procedures. Put that money back into the system instead of pumping out too many grads with obscure BAs, why not look at increasing the number of healthcare professionals? They are good-paying jobs, much better than being a barista at Starbucks because you can't get anything else with your degree. Thank you, Diane. Private option for medical care would be the same as in any profession. There are public, working for a company, or private, being an entrepreneur in all professions. But does the best carpenter slash accountant, etc., work for himself or herself or for a company? Who knows for sure? It's not a defining factor at all. It's just another option. Uh, here's another text here from, let's see, I wanted to go down to Tim, who says, The countries with the most successful systems use a combination of public and private. There are no totally public systems in the world that function efficiently. And Greg, I know that in your conversation earlier that you referenced uh, with Tristan Field-Jones, I believe... I, I sort of just kind of heard it in the periphery, but I believe uh, a number of European countries were referenced. Here, this and this may, maybe is a completely arrogant, or not arrogant, can't even think of the right word, The a completely uh, off-topic question, but does our geography have anything to do with it? Because, I mean, when you compare uh, a tiny country in Europe versus our landmass, I mean, we've got all these rural communities where we need Central, resources. Centralizing specialists. Right. Because in Switzerland, you can drive from one corner of that country to the other, wherever there are people in about three or four hours. Right. So you've got I don't even know the population of Switzerland off the top of my head. I'm going to guess it's around four or five, maybe six million people. Maybe you can look that up. You Google wizard that you are. (laughs) And yeah, and most of those People are going to live in three or four cities that are all a bullet train or, or you know, a couple hour drive apart from one another. Geography plays a big role in this, without question. Uh, look at the the what happened with um, our friend from Sprague, mm-hmm. right? He's a Manitoban, but Manitoba's made a calculated decision to say we can't justify opening. A hospital in that part of the province, yeah. that close to the border. So it's cheaper, more cost effective for us to enter into a, an agreement with a couple of private hospitals, a private hospital group in the states. And they, and so as a province, as the, as the healthcare providers, they've made a decision that that makes more sense than building a hospital. There are all sorts of decisions like that made every single day in terms of does this make sense for us to invest in this technology, in this geographic location, or should we just send people into a centralized area? It's, it complicates things dramatically, without doubt. We'll c- continue the conversation momentarily. Bill and Mary at 204-780-6868, please stand by. Uh, 8.8. 081 million, by the way, population of Switzerland. That was close. You're very close. Global News up next. He is Brett. I am Greg. Dave is listening to us, I'm going to guess, on AM 680. He tells us it's snowing heavy in Brandon again. Winter will never end. Please give me a free trip somewhere warm. <laughs> Dave, keep the snow in Brandon, please. Yeah, I'm just trying to pull up the uh, the radar of that, the the Doppler radar, but uh, it seems to be frozen on my computer. So I'm just going to close that window and 
forget about it because I don't want to think about snow right now. Mostly blue sky outside the studio here. If you've got any weather tips and pictures and you can do so safely, send us one. 780-6868. Bill and Mary waiting very patiently on the line. We'll get to you in just a moment. Uh, here's a text at 780-68. Mackling's NDP leanings, recapitalism versus socialism are, are showing. Uh, Brett, do you know a more entrepreneurial guy than myself? Uh, no, no, you champion entrepreneurs, and that that word entrepreneur comes out of your mouth often. Yeah, I, I'm 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 a capitalist. I, I am not against the idea of introducing another option, but no one has shown me how that would work without taking resources away from the public model. And yeah, I might be socialistic in my views that we're all entitled to health care, a certain level of it. But when we start getting to times like these where wait times become unacceptable, we need to investigate other ways to deliver the service, to deliver it more efficiently. That's why we're having this discussion today. I'm not slamming either option. This information we're getting today, these statistics bear out the fact that we're not doing a very good job. But what does the realistic alternative look like? And that's what we want to discuss today. Bill is at 204-780-6868. Bill, thank you very much for your patience. What do you have to say about this? Uh, well, my thing is, uh, I believe you guys are missing one key aspect that uh, people haven't been discussing is, now that it's, uh, our societies have taken a, a critical shift to where people are starting families later in life, anybody who requires any kind of fertility treatments or even to see a specialist, they when they're in their 30s, mid-30s, Waiting a year or two to try and meet a specialist, is that's critical wasted time. Where if we had a more privatized system, you could actually pay to see that specialist sooner. Bill, and I agree with you loud and clear. I went through a personal situation myself where I waited a long time to see the right people. And the only way I was able to get the care that I needed quicker was I had to, I had to find a way to pay for it. Mm-hmm. And so, well, and I, so the, so if I'm 35 and I'm sitting and I and I'm looking, I'm going, my disability coverage isn't paying me enough. I'm losing money on this. I have to very seriously think about taking matters into my own hands. And because the private system, let, we'll use MRI as an example, doesn't exist within Manitoba, I can go to Calgary, I can go to North Dakota, I can go to Minnesota, and I can get that test. I can get mm-hmm. it done faster if I want to. Mm-hmm. But shouldn't that option be available here in Manitoba? I don't know if it should or not. And the question is, who then who is going to, who's going to pay for it? And there's more cost than just the $1,500 for the test because we have finite uh, pers- personnel and, and human resources to do these jobs. So mm-hmm. uh, once again, I'm not on either side. I'm trying to yeah. come to a, a, an understanding of, of how we fix this. Well, at the end of the day, you're going to be paying regardless. So you would think that you should be able to find these tests and procedures here in Manitoba. Bill. Thank you, Bill. Thank you very much for the call, Bill, at 204-780-6868, where we go next to Mary. Hello there, Mary. Thank you for your patience. What do you have to say? Um, What perplexes me about the healthcare system, it's consuming just about half of the provincial budget, yet there are chronic shortages. It's difficult to get appointments um, to see specialists, etc. 
And I really question whether or not the money and the resources is being managed effectively. I think it's a it's a great question. I do know that there's tons of research being done on on a preventing illness in the first place. B in doing uh, better with the resources we have, uh, in particular, and I can only speak because I know intimately about it at St. Boniface Hospital, they're a, a recognized leader in North America for something called lean. It's something that came out of the of the manufacturing world and, and specialists uh, in the lean world, in fact, come to Winnipeg to learn how to implement lean, not only in their own hospitals, but in their manufacturing facilities. And that's all about doing more with what you have in terms of financial resources being more efficient, more effective. And then the other research that we're investing in is making sure that procedures are done more effectively, that when you have a a bypass surgery that it takes, that you don't have to have it again. Tom Milroy made a great point, Mary. Uh, We were talking about this this morning. He He says he remembers when he was a kid, he broke his leg. He spent 10 days in hospital at Children's Hospital about 45, 50 years ago for a broken leg. Now you would go in, you'd have your surgery, they'd cast you. You'd maybe, maybe be there overnight. So things are changing and they are trying to do uh, more with the same amount or less money. But it's a, as Donald Trump said, he's maybe said <laughs> Nothing more accurate. Who knew that healthcare could be so complicated? It is a very complicated question. There's no doubt about it. And we don't have it figured out here. Far from it. Well, you know, nonetheless, I'm sure St. B is trying. But um, overall, we're, we're pouring an incredible amount of money into it. And yet it's the same old, same old shortages, uh, you know, can't get access and on and on it goes. Mary, thank you Mary, very thank much you. for the call at 204-780-6868. We'll get to Terry in a moment. I just want to read this text here. And as far as texts go, Greg, uh, how about uh, I'll start from the bottom and you can start from the top of the Sounds column. Good. We'll eventually meet somewhere in the middle. Sounds great. I am uh, reading a text here that was sent at one o three p.m. Who says, Hi, a friend of mine needed a hip replacement. Our system said he was still too young and he should consider a wheelchair? I'm reading this cold. I, this is the first time I've read this. So wow. he did, there was no question mark there. He's a farmer and needs to be mobile. He went to the Mayo Clinic. It would have been $75,000. The doctor there said he should consider going to Germany for the operation as it would be a lot cheaper. So my friend makes a few calls to hospitals over there. They all asked if he wanted to book it in the next few days. The price was $12,000 all in plus his airfare. He went over that winter, had the procedure done has not regretted it once. I bet you wouldn't. That's a hey, great insight, great text. Thank you. Here's one, uh, lived in California and had a child there. Amazing experience. Also had a child at HSC. Not at the same level. Paid $100 and had uh, an insurance package for family under $200 per month. I'm guessing that was in California. Thank you for that. Terry, let's go to you at 204-780-6868. Terry, what do you have to say about this? Hi there. Uh, just a quick little blurb, if you will. I had a sister-in-law who was the head of the MRI department here in the Health Sciences Center, left her job here, went to Kelowna, B.C., where she now works as an MRI tech at a private clinic out there, where if you don't want to wait the uh, exorbitant amount of times that you do have to here, and I know that, having had to wait over a year for my own MRI in Winnipeg, and I was fast-tracked 
because I was covered by WCB. Mm-hmm. But back to my sister-in-law is that she has a great paying job and uh, she is added to the system out there. She isn't, uh, she isn't a drain on the local system. What she is is a drain on Winnipeg because they lost some talent here because they're willing to pay for uh, good experienced people to go out there. And uh, all they've done is increase the capacity. If you've got the money to pay it, you're going to get your MRI tomorrow. If you're not, you're going to be in the regular stream. What's, I don't understand what the people are complaining about. All right, Terry, thank you for the call at 204-780-6868. And we're going to continue the conversation with more of your calls, more of your texts. Again, that phone number is 204-780-6868. And the conversation seems to have shifted towards whether or not we would be better off with a mixed system of public and private. 204-780-6868 is the number to call, the number to text. And you can email us, brett at cjob.com, greg, pardon me, gmac at cjob.com. That is gmac at cjob.com. Your forecast is coming up next. 148, Tuesday afternoon. Hope you're having a great week so far. Thanks for taking some time with myself, Greg Mackling. He's Brett McGarry. We're talking about health care. And Brett, I think you outlined it there. It's really quickly become a conversation about this idea of, of having a, a private option because that seems to be whenever one of these reports is released, mm-hmm. whether it be from the CIHI or anybody else about wait times, whether they be ER or procedural or diagnostics, we always want to, you know, we, we, we need another option and we very well may need another option. And you're filtering back and sharing with us your ideas and your thoughts and experiences, and we appreciate it. And in case you are just tuning in, we're referring to this report card from the Canadian Institute on Health Information, which suggests that Manitoba can't be beaten for getting quick radiation treatment for cancer, but when it comes to cataract surgery, the province has the longest wait times in the country. In fact, you're better off breaking your hip, I think was the headline from uh, the Winnipeg Free Press. You're better off with a broken hip. Because we fix those really quickly. Yeah, within uh, 91% of people who need that surgery get it done within 48 hours. So that's good. Now, this just highlights the finite resources within yeah. healthcare, right? You have to decide what are you going to treat, just like when you go to an ER, if you have the unfortunate circumstance of having to go to the ER, the triage nurse kind of makes that decision, right? Where do you fall in the queue? Where? Do, how do we make a priority? We have limited resources behind me. There are only so many doctors, ER doctors in beds, and we have to decide. That's part of their, their task is to figure out who needs to get in there first. It wouldn't be an easy job, not a job I would want to have. Got a text from David at 116. Hopefully you're still listening, David. In in reference to uh, private systems, so having a mixed bag of public and private, David says, that's great if you can afford the cash out-of-pocket expenses or if you are lucky enough to have a medical plan that will cover you. I've lived in a rural area for 40 years and never had a problem getting a family doctor or timely treatment. That's good. We'd be curious to know what uh, rural area you're uh, referring to, David, but thank you for the text. Here's another text at 204-780-6868. I went to the emergency room, had my thumb cut bad. The doctor was sitting, reading the paper and having a coffee. On his break, no problem, sitting there. Four hours, I went back into the emergency room, and he was still sitting there drinking coffee and still waiting another two hours before I was seen. So I, th- I think I may have lost some of that in translation there, but it sounds like this person had a, 
a situation that needed to be dealt with and could see a doctor just sitting there doing nothing. Hmm. We need more specifics on that. But thank you for sharing. Do you have any messages at the top of the queue that you're seeing there, Well, Greg? actually, I have this one flagged, and I apologize. It's a little bit lower down here, but I flagged it because it comes from a 701 area code. I see it. Which is North Dakota. Some private doctors have the right to refuse anyone depending on their medical history so that they can keep their successful surgery at a higher level and with private surgery and private doctors, that leaves it open for lawsuits. Oh, boy. That is one area that people forget about, right, in the United States when you're in private practice. Malpractice insurance, A, very expensive, and I also know very well from someone who lives in California whose husband was a neurosurgeon uh, that it's a nightmare keeping track of of all the premiums not only for your family that's that's an aside right and keeping track it's a part-time job figuring out what coverages you have what's covered uh, making sure that your premiums have been paid but uh, my friend was married to a neurosurgeon and just keeping track of making sure his premiums were paid and all the paperwork that needed to be done, it was another part-time job. So it's it always seems greener on the other side. Mm-hmm. I wrote back to this individual in North Dakota, and I said, we haven't even discussed the private insurance companies who add a whole layer of costs for providers and patients alike. Malpractice insurance is a nightmare to manage for physicians in the United States. And not to mention, you know, we talk about how much resources financially we spend in Canada, Per GDP or for GDP comparison, the United States spends way more per person on health care and has millions of people who don't have coverage in the traditional American sense. Uh, when in Canada, everyone is covered. But do we sacrifice for that? I, I don't think there's any doubt about it. Um, and then, then the follow up and then I'll let you jump in here uh, from our listener in North Dakota. And that is why private doctors pick the ones with the less or least chance of having any problems after to avoid malpractice lawsuits. Got a text here from Bernie that I wanted to read. And Bernie says, I'm listening to your program and I need to tell the story of a dear friend that is caught in the system and they are virtually letting him die with complete ignorance on their part. A rare skin disease. It hardens the skin like a cocoon, and eventually heart and the lungs, heart and kidney, spleen do not function. He was diagnosed last March, and they placed him on a heavy doses of chemo to try to slow the disease down. Ever since the chemo stopped, I believe in August, it has just been a gong show with a specialist with meetings once every month to decide what they will do. In desperation last week because of his failing health, we sent medical records to the Mayo Clinic and they responded within 24 hours. Mm -hmm. I don't know yet of what they will do, but the response time and interest they showed was outstanding. What our system did to my friend Howard is nothing short of criminal and we would like love to elaborate on the story to the media. So Bernie, if you're listening... uh, Send us an email, brett at cjob.com, gmac at cjob.com. I mentioned uh, the fact that uh, Sprague, we were talking about uh, Sprague earlier, and, uh, you know, the the fact that there's no hospital. Mm-hmm. There is a hospital. Shane says Sprague has a hospital on Provincial Road 308. It's called the East Borderland Primary Health Care Centre. If the province could invest money on a heliport and or improving services there, it would be great in circumstances that call for emergency situations. 
Interesting. And Very. I come completely unfamiliar uh, with that part of the province. So uh, thank you for filling us in here. Um, more texts. Here's one from from Jan. Have you read Jan's text yet? I don't think we I have. I don't think so. I responded to her, but I have not read it yet. Jan says, regarding wait times, I'm waiting for a hip replacement. I'm 52, in good shape, and a good candidate for surgery. So I had my MRI in June 2016. Had the physio check-in. November 2016. Next step is waiting for the letter for the surgeon for the consultation. I believe I should get that about June this year. Then the surgery will be another wait 9 to 12 months after that. If I could pay for it now, I certainly would. The pain is horrible and is getting worse by the month. I'm not impressed at all. Thanks, guys. Jan. And when I think about when I see that, just, the, okay, she had to wait months and then a mm-hmm. year and now mm-hmm. waiting another year and another year on top of that it's in no other area would we find these wait times acceptable like if you wanted to go buy tires and they said to you yeah we, i think we can uh we can see if we have the tires in stock we'll get back to you in six to nine months and then after that it'll take about 12 to 15 months to order them you want to pay for that now <laughs> no we wouldn't find that acceptable and yet with healthcare, it just seems to be well that's our system. No, the customer service aspect is certainly uh, lacking in terms of ability to provide that service. And I always have to remember, for every number, for every statistic, there are multiple stories of people. Even though we've got 91% of all patients who have a fractured hip getting it repaired in 48 hours, that means... are not getting it in that timely a fashion. And every one of those people has a story, you know, and we're all very well aware of that. I'm a little worried about a two-tier system, says Robert. I get that on the surface. Yes, absolutely. People who can pay and want to should be able to. What worries me is down the road. What happens when the government starts to raise the cost uh, year by year because the federal government cuts back on health transfer payments? Thank you, Robert. 157 and 680 CJOB. Thank you very much for all of your text messages, all of your phone calls and emails. Global News coming up next. This is the audio from that viral video. Hashtag love you, robot. This is a little girl. Her name is Raina. This video is uh, almost, well, it didn't crash Twitter, but it certainly took it over for certain periods last night. And she's a little girl who comes across a hot water tank that's been disposed of on her street. And it's got some auxiliary equipment on top that kind of look like eyes. I don't know if it's a water softener, what it might be, or a thermostat. And she looks at it, and she thinks it's a robot. And she has that little chat and then ends up giving it a hug and, of course, walks away saying, I love you, robot. So, Raina, that wasn't a robot. But Raina's of the age where perhaps one day she may be the boss of multiple robots. (laughs) I <laughs> was wondering how you were going to work that in. thought you were just playing it because you thought kids are cute. Well, there's a little element of that, of course, but <laughs> I wanted to tie it into our uh, topic of conversation for the next half hour here. You are the master of segue. <laughs>
Future Proof is the name of the report from the Brookfield Institute for Innovation and Entrepreneurship, preparing young Canadians for the future of work. And we have the co-author with us, Sarah Doyle, joining us. And Sarah, I have to apologize, but we need to know, where are you joining us from, geographically speaking? I'm uh, joining you from Ottawa. Well, it's great to have you with us. Uh, We appreciate that. Your uh, list of credentials is outstanding. Director of Policy and Research for the Brookfield Institute for Innovation and Entrepreneurship. Master of Science in International Relations from the London School of Economics and Political Science in the Commonwealth. You're a Commonwealth Scholar, graduate of the McMaster University Arts and Sciences Program. Have you seen Raina's interaction with the robot yet? I have, I have. It was quite uh, a cute video, as you say, but I liked the way that you bridged uh, into this conversation because I think, um, if I can briefly kind of contextualize what we're about to talk about, I think there's a lot of fear about robots taking over jobs, but I think we should also see the opportunity of uh, kind of uh, working alongside robots uh, in in ways that are quite complementary. So I think youth that are entering the workforce now and in the future um, need to be conditioned to complement the skills that robots might be bringing into the mix. Why should we not be afraid of them? I mean, uh, is, it, is it not a natural thing to be afraid of something that could take away someone's job? Well, a report that we put out uh, last year uh, signaled that about 42% of jobs are at risk of being impacted by automation. But I think there's an important distinction between the fact that they could be impacted uh, versus disappear. So I think we're going to see the creation of jobs, and I think we're going to see a lot of jobs change as a result of automation. Uh, Some may also disappear, and I I don't think that should get ignored. But I I likewise don't think that we should be ignoring some of the opportunity in terms of productivity gain um, and just the basic fact of of change. And that's really what this report was about, that we've we've got uh, massive and fairly rapid changes occurring within our employment landscape. And if we don't prepare youth for that future uh, then we could be facing some, tr- some trouble. So, Sarah, if we have to prepare students, is there enough preparation and conversation taking place between the institutes and uh, you know educational facilities that educate our young people and industry? Is there enough three-way conversation going on there to determine what the needs are going to be? Because we've had this conversation here and seen statistics that a startling number, maybe two-thirds of, of jobs that people who are in uh, our children, basically, that are in school right now, are going to be doing jobs that haven't even been invented yet. So how do we how do we make sure that uh, we're talking to each other enough to ensure that there are people to fill those uh, positions when they are created and when they come to be? Yeah, that's a great point. Um, two two things in answer to that. The first is that we aren't doing a good enough job yet. I think we need to imagine new models for training and education in order to uh, kind of get on top of these trends. Um, One kind of interesting fact, I think, uh, that's come out recently is that about 83% of education providers uh, believe that youth are fully prepared for the workforce, whereas only 44% of youth and 34% of employers feel the same. Um, And that's that's certainly concerning. So as you say, I think we need new kinds of partnerships uh, in order to better prepare youth for a future that is rapidly shifting. Uh, The other thing I would say is that while we don't know exactly what those jobs are going to look like, we do have some sense of the types of skills that will be most relevant. Uh, Entrepreneurial skill sets, uh, not just for those who may wish to start businesses, but for those who will be parts of teams in large corporations or in government or other uh, organizations, 
because of the rapid nature of these changes, we're going to need people that have those types of skill sets that position them to adjust uh, and deal with environments of risk and opportunity in a more agile fashion. Uh, similarly, we need people with problem-solving, social intelligence, creativity-type skill sets. These are things that, uh, at least right now, robots haven't quite figured out. We're talking about a report called Future Proof, Preparing Young Canadians for the Future of Work. It's from the Brookfield Institute for Innovation and Entrepreneurship. Sarah Doyle is our guest. She is the Director of Policy and Research with the Brookfield Institute. And Sarah, one of the things that jumped out at me in this report is that it says Canadian youth are highly skilled, well-educated, entrepreneurial, and arguably among the best suited to adapt to the complex skills required for the future of work. Why is that? Why are our youth so uh, ready for the future of work? Well, I wouldn't say necessarily that they're so ready. I think they've got the potential to be ready. I think there is uh, certainly a great deal of help and support that is going to be needed from all sectors in order to to ensure that they're you know fully harnessing that potential. Um, but the reason for that that statement is that uh, there are a lot of different sectors of the workforce that are going to need to adjust for these changes. Uh, youth are currently in education systems. They are entering or early in their career. Um, they're more familiar with technology, uh, whereas older workers, people who are already in the workforce perhaps, uh, may find it more difficult to uh, adapt as these changes come through and change the, the nature of the jobs that they're filling. So, Sarah, is it maybe even more critical for those people who are in the workforce right now that might be in their late 20s and their 30s, maybe even their early 40s that are going to be working another 20, 30, 35 years uh, to be aware of the changes ahead and to prepare themselves? It may be even more critical in my mind than it is for people who are in high school right now. Um, I don't know if I would say more critical. Certainly it is. Um, and I think this, this speaks to the need for different types of models. Um, I think for those who are younger, who haven't yet hit the workforce, there is, in some ways there's more um, ready opportunity to adjust existing models to better fit their needs. And I think part of that has to involve employers and educational institutions working in much more fluid and collaborative ways. Um, to reflect kind of supply and demand of talent uh, in a manner that's a bit more aligned. Uh, For those who are early career who are already in the workforce, um, I think we we need to develop models for rapid upskilling and retraining, and we're starting to see that happen with uh, the rise of MOOCs, uh, massive online courses. Uh, And I think similarly, employers are going to need to invest more in training their own workforces to make sure that they're getting ahead of the curve. I think there's, you know, there's a real impact on their bottom line if they don't figure that out. Um, and I think a number of employers are starting to recognize that. I'm Brett McGarry. He is Greg Mackling. And we are talking about how to prepare a workforce for the age of automation. Future Proof is the name of the report. Preparing Young Canadians for the Future of Work. It's from the Brookfield Institute for Innovation and Entrepreneurship. Our guest is Sarah Doyle, who is the Director of Policy and Research for the Brookfield Institute. Sarah, thank you so much for your patience and for continuing our conversation. And I wanted to just sort of revisit one of the previous points uh, where the report points to how Canadian youth in particular are entrepreneurial. Why are they so entrepreneurial? Um, you know, it's hard to 
say. I think Canadians have been criticized for not being risk takers, but rates of entrepreneurship among youth are actually fairly high. Um, And I think part of what that entails from a skill set perspective is being willing to take a risk and fail and learn from that failure um, and being able to kind of pivot and adjust. And those are exactly the kinds of skills that uh, a more a potentially more precarious and certainly a rapidly shifting future of work are going to require. Sarah, it kind of surprised me that mixed in with this myriad and really mandatory technical skills that individuals are going to have to to are going to have to have to excel in the future is the fact that soft skills are going to be as marketable as ever. Is that fair to say? Yes, absolutely. Um, and I think you you, you, know, you could argue that. Robots may not have those soft skills, um, but some of the hard stuff they'll be able to figure out. So in some ways, those soft skills are are going to be rising in importance, uh, which is certainly not to say that uh, STEM is uh, is declining in importance. It certainly is required, but we actually aren't really seeing across Canada um, uh, an inadequate supply of STEM skills. I think what we're seeing from employers, and a number of reports will bear this out, is that uh, it's hard for employers to find people that uh, not only have a STEM degree in the field that they're recruiting for, but also have the soft skills that will allow them to uh, make decisions um, to engage with uh, uh, with clients in a way that will drive the business uh, successfully. So those are those experience um, uh, skill sets, those soft skill sets, are ones that are certainly in demand um, and perhaps not in adequate supply. Maybe you could, uh, for those of us that don't know what STEM stands for, maybe you could uh, give us the uh, meaning of that acronym. Uh, sure, of course. This is for uh, skill sets related primarily to like, sciences and tech type jobs. Um, there's been a push to, to get more, sort of turn more talent out in those types of fields, recognizing that technology is driving uh, job growth, not only in the traditional tech sector, but across sectors as technology becomes more and more pervasive. Uh, and that's certainly true, but um, I think it's, it's really important to underscore how critical those soft skills are um, in order to uh, position people with, with those uh, more technical skills to actually succeed within a business uh, environment. And I would add to that that some of uh, the skill sets associated with the liberal arts or humanities, um, for example, related to critical thinking and problem solving, are, are similarly ones that uh, that are required in a business environment. Sarah, we got a text here at 204-780-6868 from Ryan who asks, are we putting too much faith into the transition into all of this technology? What would you say to that question? Um, I guess it depends what is meant by faith. I certainly don't think that we're talking about, um, you know, a completely utopic future. I think there's a lot of opportunity embedded in uh, technological trends. There's also a lot of of risk. Uh, I think we should be very cautious um, about how we think about reshaping our regulatory environments, how we think about producing talent in order to respond to the way that the the future of work is is changing. Um, I also think, though, that we should recognize that while these changes are are massive, um, they're not exactly universal. The, the ability of a company to adopt an automated approach to some aspect of its business is going to be partially dependent on the cost, uh, on societal preference, on the preferences of its customers. So it won't necessarily happen everywhere. 
So if you could summarize in terms of a, a call to action here, every good message comes with a call to action, and this is an outstanding report. What would, in your words, the call to action be uh, surrounding and at the end of this research and this presentation? Uh, I think the primary point is that uh, all sectors need to come together to craft new models for training youth uh, for this future of work. Uh, it's not just a problem of government. It's not, not just a problem of, uh, of employers. Um, and to really crack this uh, challenge of producing people with this unique kind of blend of skills uh, as well as experience, employers are going to have to be involved. They'll have to be at the table. Um, and I'd just like to, to point to one interesting example of this. Uh, RBC has just announced a 10-year, $500 million commitment to helping young people prepare for the future of work. And I think that could be a really exciting catalyst for some of the things that we're looking at. Sarah Doyle, uh, one more question here I wanted to ask you about. There's something in the report related to the, what you call the scar, the scarring effect. Pardon me. What is the scarring effect? Um, that refers to the hit in terms of future wages that results when a young person uh, experiences a delay in entering the workforce. So a lot of youth uh, on exiting school, and this will be no surprise to many, um, are not immediately finding work. And in some cases, that delay can be months or even years long. Uh, and the longer somebody is uh, in that in-between uh, school and work, uh, the more they'll suffer in terms of wages, not just in their first job, but over the, the course of their career. And that's not just a problem for them, it's a problem for the country. Sarah, thank you for uh, taking some extra time with us outside the parameters we sat, set up with uh, with the folks at the, at the uh, Brookfield Institute. We appreciate your time very much. No problem. Happy to be with you. Brookfield Institute for Innovation and Entrepreneurship. Sarah Doyle, the co-author of this report that we've been referencing for the last 20 minutes or so, Future Proof, Preparing Young Canadians for the Future of Work. And Brett, this whole idea of industry and education and students talking to one another is so critical. I remember going to Red River back when websites were just launching Mm -hmm. and they had this separate institute for, you know, essentially educational opportunities that were aligned with industry. And I asked somebody, you have a special area for that? Shouldn't it all be aligned with the needs of industry? And the lady looked at me and said, you know what, that's really a good question. And that's really where we've come now. We These these priorities all need to align or we're going to be training for jobs that don't exist. And there are going to be lots of jobs that go unfilled in this, in this uh, next era of change in our economy. 227 Global News coming up next on 680 CJOB. 234, 234. Monday was yesterday, Tuesday is today. See how I covered up my... There. Uh, Covering the days, off all the bases. The days the week just blend in together. I get, like I literally have to write it down. I will admit today when I when I opened the show, yes, I couldn't remember what day it was. Oh, thank goodness! And I'm, I'm glad I had to schedule and that said Tuesday, March 27th. <laughs> hey, man, I type that up. Uh, I'm just as likely to type it in there incorrectly as I am to type it correctly. Anyway, Tuesday afternoon. Hope it's a great day for you. Uh, we appreciate you taking some time with us. Would you be surprised to learn that millennials are the top? target for fraudsters. I would. I know that when you got that email, you and I were conversing and went, this doesn't make sense. I thought the fraudsters were after the the elderly and the more 
while the less tech-savvy individuals in our society, not younger tech-savvy people, so we said, hey, we need to learn more about this. So That's what we're going to do. Tara Zekovich is here. She is Equifax Canada's Vice President of Fraud Prevention and Identity Management. Tara, thank you so much for joining us today on Mackling My and pleasure. McGarry. So millennials, top target for fraudsters. Uh, how did you find this out? Um, it was pretty interesting. We actually did a conducted a consumer survey um, to find out just about millennials and their attitudes around protecting themselves. But we also um, collect information at Equifax Canada around attempts uh, for application fraud. And it was through that um, that data that we we identified that millennials are a leading target for fraudsters. Well, one of the things I I continually marvel at. Uh, Tara, is when I'm out and I'm purchasing things, and that's an increasingly cashless society, and I've certainly bought into that. But how many people do not take their receipt, do not take their copy of their receipt, and just kind of leave that information in the hands of others, a a, a retail outlet, a gas station, you name it? Uh, Is there any danger in in not taking that piece of paper with you and having that... uh, although it's it's modified information floating around? The receipt itself is not as concerning because there isn't any personal identifiable information. Your, your card number is not um, on the receipt, so that's not as concerning. But you should think about or think twice before you leave your plane ticket in the seat pocket in front of you because mm. all that information, I have your first, your last name, and chances are the city that you flew out of or that you're going to is home. And with those pieces of information, uh, and um, and I'm a sophisticated fraudster, I can quickly start to put together your address and start gathering information on you so that I can uh, apply for a loan or credit card or take out a telephone, cell phone in your name. So what are some things that millennials uh, should be doing? It says here education and better protection is needed. So what do we do for that? So some things that I would really encourage very simply is to make sure that you're looking at your credit card statements um, every month. Look through those transactions. If you recognize or if you don't recognize something, make sure that you highlight it and and you report it. But other things that you should be doing as well is making sure financial documents that you're shredding them. You're not just putting them in your garbage bin. Making sure you're updating your security passwords and software on your personal computer. Um, Share less on social media and make sure that you're limiting the use of public Wi-Fi. And another important thing, too, that we encourage Canadians to do is make sure that you're actively monitoring your credit report. Millennials do a really good job, actually, of checking their credit report at one point in time, but it's that ongoing monitoring that's really important. It's almost like a secret alarm that you know you're notified via email if someone is making an application um, in your name. Because if you start... Um, if you are a victim of identity theft and you start having a number of trade lines showing up, it could take some time to get those corrected and removed from your file, and you want to avoid that. I think most of us know someone who's received a phone call from a credit card company asking, are you in Phoenix? Are you in Maui? Are you in Omaha, Nebraska, because their credit card number has been absconded with and maybe people are buying things uh, with that credit card number. And of course, that can lead to a huge amount of fraudulent purchases. But I think it pales into 
comparison, if someone manages to recreate you or duplicate or steal your identity, the amount of damage that can be done on a financial and a, and a logistic scale is mind-boggling versus something like that, which might be the scariest thing that some people can imagine in terms of financial fraud. Yeah, and you make an important distinction because on the transactional, so you were talking about transactional fraud um, in your first example, and you're right. If you get notified, uh, the your financial institution, they have very sophisticated uh, systems to be able to identify those anomalies. And um, if they're notifying you, you can block it and they'll, they'll work with you to address that. But it is those cases of identity theft where people are taking out a mortgage, uh, a loan in your name that are much more sophisticated and a little bit... Um, trickier to address in a very prompt manner and it just takes some time does any of this have to do with the fact that maybe uh, not i don't want to point at all millennials but for many of them they've always had access to technology like things like cell phones and laptop computers is it just that they've they've been around it for so long that they're they maybe are just a little too lax with this kind of stuff well they're they're definitely very comfortable but i you know what our survey data told us is that Millennials didn't really think that they would be uh, a target for fraudsters because they didn't think they had enough money. But the, in these particular cases, as we've been discussing, it's not that the fraudster is trying to get access to your personal um, funds. Instead, what they're doing is they're using your good name to take out and apply for credit in your name. So that's where um, there's a, an important but uh, differentiation. And I mean, I, you know, I'm starting to think now that, you know, if you have children with an RESP, you have to have a social insurance number, essentially, before you start contributing to that RESP. And there are people around the world that make their living replicating individuals who have the potential to yield these sorts of large gains and, and to recreate a, and to create a whole new identity for someone based on the credit rating and the financial history of an unsuspect, unsspecting top, uh, uh, subject. So you have to be incredibly careful no matter how old or in this case, how young you are. Absolutely, because again, if it's a, a young person and you're you're getting that social insurance number when they're quite young for RESPs, they're they're actually an ideal target because they have a blank slate, so to speak, and um, they have a, a, a social insurance number that's quite good, and and they're very patient in building up the profile of that young person and and start taking out those applications, which is one of the reasons that we actually introduced Equifax's complete friends and family program, where not only can I be monitoring my own credit report, but I can also monitor my children uh, who, you know, it could be a young person or it could be like my 17 year old daughter who has other things and is interested in school and is not thinking about protecting her credit report. I can do it um, uh, on her behalf and we can both get notified if some, if someone's applying for a loan in her name. And uh, same thing for uh, one's elderly parents if you wanted to ensure that they also weren't being uh, victimized. Those are the precise type of scenarios that we uh, led us to to build this particular monitoring solution. How often should we be checking our credit ratings? Um, You should check it um, often, at least once to twice a year. But I would supplement that checking of the full report with this monitoring. So you've checked the report, it looks good, and now with the monitoring service, um, you're notified if there's any changes, and that's what you really want to know about. So that if you didn't apply for that second cell phone, 
um, you know, or if it was you legitimately going in, um, that's okay too. But this way you have a complete uh, peace of mind. Uh, Tara, last one for you here. Over the last few years, as, we, as we've been discussing this whole proliferation of of fraud on different levels, and and certainly the the big one where where people are, are t- taking your identity, uh, have you had a tough bridge to build in terms of your relationship with the public? Because for so long there was this acrimonious almost relationship between the public and and what we might have called when we were younger the credit bureau, and maybe the only time you're even aware and thought about their existence was maybe when you went to go for that car loan or for that or for that mortgage. Now with more credit card products than ever you're in a situation where that relationship is maybe more critical and then never mind the the whole risk of of identity theft have you had challenges in terms of being a trusted partner with people to uh, keep an eye on their identity and to keep their money and their long-term financial future safe that's an excellent question and i i don't think it's been a, a challenge it's been one of education and communication and really working with consumers and how, uh, you know, and explaining how we can play a vital role in helping them to secure their private information and making sure that it's it's accurate, that it's not um, with the number of data breaches, unfortunately, that have um, happened that their information or individual information is out in the public domain. How can we ensure that we're helping, you know, protect Canadians um, identity and really putting them at the center and having them control um, their identity and their credit. And I think it's a an interesting and an important um, shift in perspective. And so it's been uh, it's been a great journey. Tara Zekovich, thank you so much for joining us today. Tara Zekovich is Equifax Canada's Vice President of Fraud Prevention and Identity Management. Once again, talking about this report that they've done, where they've discovered that millennials are the top target for fraudsters and that education and better protection is needed. It is 245 and 680 CJOB. Your forecast is coming up next. 249. He's Brett. I'm Greg. And Brett, I'm going to ask you a question. Okay. Uh, I know you got along really well with your parents and you lived in suburban utopia. (laughs) Wow. No, I don't know that. It's just what I've ascertained. Over our time together. It was just fairly fairly uneventful. Okay. (laughs) Did your mom or your dad ever threaten you with punishments that they never followed through on? Um, I think so. But uh, generally speaking, if there was a threat, it was backed up with, it's going to happen. I think that's why the threat always was effective, because I knew that they were likely to follow through. Well, lots of parents make threats that they don't follow through on. Okay. This came from time.com. I think was this, uh, was it our colleague Christian O'Mell who pointed us in the direction of this hilarious and very public shaming? Some would call it uh, uh, trolling if it was uh, against someone that you didn't know. But in this case, it was a son, quote unquote, trolling his own or a dad trolling his own son. Here's the headline. I'll get you to read the uh, story, Brett, because you're such a great newsreader. Here's the headline. Dad's punishment for his son's bad grades was very public and Hilarious. While getting bad grades usually mean consequences of some kind, one resourceful father knew what would really drive home the lesson that school matters. An NBA fan showed up to the Cleveland Cavaliers versus Charlotte Hornets game on Friday night with a sign that hilariously called out his son Thomas's less than stellar academics and suggesting that if he gets his grades up, 
Next time, you'll be here. That's a quote from the sign. <laughs> the trolling approach to parenting did not stop there, however. This NBA dad also showed up to the Houston Rockets versus Oklahoma City Thunder game on oh, Sunday oh night. My. So he's crisscrossing the United <laughs> States with another sign captured by ESPN that emphasized, emphasized that his son should be a student, then athlete. This dad is the real MVP, and there's a picture of him sitting in the, the crowd with his sign. It's it's typed out. It's not a hastily written sign that's just written with a big marker. It Actually, it's it's somehow typed out, Thomas, get your grades back up. Next time you'll be here, love, Dad, <laughs> with a little emoji of, a, of someone with a single tear coming out of its right eye. Fabulous. And, and then there's another picture from the uh, game between, uh, I guess it was the Rockets game, right, in yeah. Oklahoma City. And it says, uh, Thomas, can you hear me now? Student, capitals, all caps, then all caps, athlete, son, in that order, love, dad. And somebody else noticed and tweeted out the picture. He's back. I, I have to commend this dad. He clearly planned this trip to take in a couple of basketball games mm-hmm. and left his son at home yep. as some sort of punishment for not doing and, and making the academic effort required. I've always admired student athletes and the way they've managed to balance uh, the responsibility of school and the hard work required to be a, 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 an athlete. But there are a lot of people that I know that put the student part of that equation way on the other side of the room and only focused on the athletics. And this father's making sure that it doesn't happen to his son. And uh, I want to give him a round of applause. It's a phenomenal, that. it's phenomenal lesson. And it's, it's probably for, for Thomas, who we actually don't know how old Thomas is, but for Thomas, this is probably a tough pill to swallow. And that re- I'm sure the initial reaction was anger and perhaps hatred towards his father. Uh, but I'm, so it's good for the dad to stand his ground because I know that anytime I was punished as a child for whatever, uh, I would be mad. Of course, you're mad. You kick and scream. And now, how dare you take away my Nintendo? <laughs> but, you know, as you have some time to think about it and ruminate on it, as Dr. Cyrus might say, <laughs> you kind of realize, yeah, I, uh, I deserve this. And it makes you look at what you did and realize, okay, I need to to change something so this doesn't happen again. So even back in the days of your youth, electronics, retention and separation and confiscation was the most effective form of punishment and the most effective threat? It, it, generally it was uh, no TV for a week or you're you're grounded for a week. You, uh, you, I don't know. It was often you're grounded, no TV, no video games, that sort of stuff. So we have just a few moments. So if you're listening to this and going, oh, that reminds me of the time I punished such and such so-and-so with a certain creative punishment, we'd like to hear from you. We've got just a couple minutes. But if you have the chance, 780-6868, jump on the air with us and relay that story to us and our listeners. We'd love to hear from you. And do you think that this was a creative form of punishment? I I think it's fantastic. Well, it's uh, the the one thing that that could work against it is the fact that it is gaining a lot of attention. So this Thomas kid, now not only has he been punished for not you can't come to the games, but now 
Everyone knows public scorn. Yeah, it's it's public scorn at the. It's it's one thing to for your to be let's say dragged out in front of your friends or something and embarrassed. Okay, that's fine. But now this kid has been embarrassed uh, on a national on an international level. So is that is that too much? I don't know. I I still applaud this, and I think it's just just for the fact that it's hilarious. <laughs> I love it. I want to press to the start button on two stopwatches. The first one, who will be the first NBA team to step forward to invite Thomas and his dad, all expenses paid, to a game? Oh. And start the stopwatch on the human rights or some other organization decrying <laughs> Thomas's dad's approach here, <laughs> suggesting that he's being, if if nothing else, neglectful at the very most. Uh, maybe he's being uh, beyond neglectful and he's being abusive oh. for taking this approach. I suspect we may see one or both of these things very quickly. Darlene, we have 60 seconds at 204-780-6868. What do you have to say? Uh, I had a, I have a nine-year-old daughter. She was, uh, she loved to climb. She was a tomboy. She got caught in the changing room after gym class by the present teacher that she was climbing the locker shower room doors. And he said to her, uh, Selena, what would your mother say if she saw you? She said, oh, she wouldn't care. So she was very disrespectful to the teacher. Um, teacher let me know this. And so so uh, daughter and I had a chat, and I grounded her from climbing everything for a week. That included her, her favorite tree in the backyard, her bunk bed where she liked to sleep on a top bunk, and even at school in the playground. Um, she had to apologize to her teacher for being disrespectful. And I chatted with her teachers, and she, at, at recess, she respected that punishment that she didn't climb all, all for a whole week. Darlene, that is interesting, and I would love to hear more about that, but we do have to go. Uh, to, but maybe we'll have to revisit this conversation at some point, either today or this week. It is Mackling and McGarry, Global News at 3 o'clock, up next. It's Brett McGarry with Greg Mackling on 680 CJOB. Thank you so much for joining us this afternoon. And right now, we want to talk about the fact that... We want to celebrate a 20-year anniversary. The Canadian Sports Centre, Manitoba, celebrating its 20th birthday this week. And we have Jeff Powell, who is the general manager for Canadian Sports Centre, Manitoba, on the phone with us at 680 CJOB. Jeff, thank you so much for joining us today. Oh, thanks very much for having me. So 20 years. Did you Have you been with the organization since it was formed? Uh, I have not. No, no. It uh, it was planned and conceived uh, in the lead up to the '99 Pan Am Games, which uh, predates me just a little bit. So, Jeff, is this uh, center essentially a legacy of the 1999 Pan American Games? Well, it is one of them, and um, I think one of the most important things for people to know is that unlike a lot of the big multinational games that we see now. The Panam Games here was run at a profit, and they were able to direct some of that to a fund at the Winnipeg Foundation, which has funded this organization every year since. And this year, we're actually also celebrating the return of the three millionth dollar back into high-performance sport in Manitoba. So a lot of people will ask, well, why is it important that we invest in sport? I, I think it's critical as a province that we do this, but when people ask you why it's critical, what do you tell them? Well, I tell them that it's uh, 
it's an opportunity for a community to celebrate champions and to create them those kinds of heroes for the community. I was just giving a bit of a chat last week where we talked about the the Cindy Clausens and the Clara Hughes of our local community here. And if we'd known what they would have become, there would have been no investment we wouldn't have made in them. So as we look to the, the Canada Summer Games then, coming up in August, how important is the Canadian Sports Centre Manitoba in, uh, in terms of what will happen at these games? So our mandate tends to fall more on the Olympic and Paralympic side. So what we'd be looking for then is out of Manitoba's team of, let's say, 300 athletes, there might be half a dozen or 10 athletes that could reasonably consider an international sporting career. And those would be the athletes we'd be looking to identify and then start working with in preparation for an Olympic or Paralympic Games. We see this terminology tied to Manitoba, uh, in particular in terms of athletics, punching above its weight, and we really do do that in athletics, don't we, Jeff? Well, we do, um, it, and in fact, we're we're looking very good for both the Winter Olympics coming up uh, in Pyeongchang in 2018 and the Tokyo Games in 2020. Curling, of course, is the biggest one here, but Right now, we're working with some pretty upper echelon athletes in uh, track and field, in swimming, in soccer, in rowing. So it's a fairly wide base of, uh, of sports that we work with here. And it's, it's pretty encouraging that we can compete at that level across such a wide variety of sport. And Jeff, uh, there's one thing that uh, you folks do over there uh, as regarding sport science. Uh, and you... It, you know, it is evolving, and I think there for a while there, it looked like the Americans seemed to really be outclassing everybody. But Canada is catching up now, and in Winnipeg in particular, uh, because of your organization, does that are athletes sort of at a in a in a good position to to really be focused upon? Yeah, I mean, it's a good question. Like anything else, we're never where we'd like to be. But we're doing a whole lot better job of it than we did even 8 or 12 years ago. So the analogy I give people is that to compete internationally now, it's not like Rocky and Mick in the meat freezer hitting a side of beef anymore, right? It's much more complex. The involvement of sports science to eke out every little bit of performance has become critically important. And you can't probably expect a a 20-year-old living on... $800 a month to be able to hire a nutritionist and a sports psych and a physiologist and all the other disciplines that are required. And that's really where we step in. Now, we'd love to do a whole lot more of it because there's certainly a need, but I think we do pretty well with what we have. Jeff, outside of coaching other athletes and and doing the sorts of things that you've done post-athletic career and, and working in athletics, just Give our listeners an idea of the investment and how it pays off in athletes in our in our society overall. Because uh, in my mind, uh, so many athletes go on to do such incredible things outside the sporting realm for uh, our city and our province. I, th- I think you're absolutely right, and I, I mentioned two of them, of course, already. But the what we're doing a lot more of these days is the life services piece as well. So for retiring athletes who may have spent four, eight, 12 years in their sport and may be struggling with issues of chronic injury or depression or belonging, we're doing a lot more work with them so that they can take their leadership skills that they've learned on the field of play and transfer them back to their communities so that they can make, I think, the kinds of contributions you're talking about. 
Uh, Jeff, of course, your career as a, a roarer was, uh, uh, you know, a very uh, outstanding one in participating in the Olympics. Uh, uh, can you share with us the, the thrill of representing Canada in the Olympics? <laughs> uh, well, sure. It's, I mean, it's incredible. The... Um, the uh, we see of course the the maple leaf on the flag at every jets game and and uh every canada day celebration but in rowing in particular we don't actually get to row with the maple leaf on our oar until we get to a world championships or olympic games and you don't really realize i mean you get your plane ticket you get your gear but until you actually get to put your maple leaf on your oar it never really hits you but i can always remember the first time i was ever able to do that and what a powerful, meaningful moment that was. And I think most athletes who have represented Canada have a moment like that. Jeff, uh, do you want to stick around for a couple of moments? We have to update traffic and weather, and we can talk a little bit about the uh, the, the prowess and the, and the uh, success of our Manitoba athletes uh, on the world stage and talk about why that's a good thing for our promise. You stick around with us? I would love to, yes. Jeff Powell joining us. He's general manager of the Canadian Sports Centre Manitoba coming up on their uh, 20th anniversary here in our city. Traffic and weather together. Up next. 318, we're visiting with Jeff Powell. He's general manager of the Canadian Sports Centre Manitoba celebrating their 20th anniversary. And Jeff is a member of the Manitoba Sports Hall of Fame. He rode for Canada in the 2004 Olympic Games in Athens. And Jeff, you were a well-rounded athlete. You, you participated in, I think, uh, your high school team won the provincial uh, boys championship at one point. So <laughs> You're going back a little bit with that. Yeah. It, but that's a fact, right? I'm not remembering incorrectly? No, you are not. Okay, so this whole idea of specializing in a sport early, and we're, we're seeing it more often, right, that, that kids are, and I hate picking on the hockey players because baseball players do it too, and, and so do other athletes, but this idea of specializing too early, well, what, what's your take on, on being a well-rounded athlete and participating in a variety of sports and activities? Oh, I think there's no question that um, that that's the way to go. One of the things that we talk about a lot is if you have a you know six, seven, eight year old that's showing some promise in a sport and you choose to specialize, what you're probably going to do is you're going to have a very good hockey player. What you eliminate, though, the possibility of is having an exceptional, you know, truly world class athlete in a, another sport that you may not even know of at that time. So when I think about some of the athletes that we're working with now the really exceptional ones all have a multi-sport background. And you hear it to recruiters, even to the big sports, the football schools in the States, they, their coaches there will look for multi-sport athletes who are better with body awareness. They tend to be a little bit more robust. They tend to be a little bit less injury prone, are less likely to burn out of their sport. It's, uh, I fully agree that it's a big issue right now. And the more that we can do to get kids, very active kids playing multiple sports throughout the year, the more elite, truly elite athletes we'll get. So Jeff, the, the Pan Am Legacy Fund, uh, which continues hmm. to to fund you, your organization, some uh, almost 20 years after the games, um, what when you get a contribution every year from the Pan Am Legacy Fund, uh, what does that go towards? Well... I mean, our business is largely servicing athletes and servicing them with sports science and sport medicine support. So the folks that work at our organization tend to be 
scientists, we're talking master's degree, PhD degree holders uh, who are able to work with the athletes on some pretty cutting edge interventions. So it goes towards them. Now, the other piece, of course, is equipment um, facilitating competition or coaching opportunities for athletes in the province. And uh, from time to time, we'll get involved in very specialized um, research into sports science initiatives as well. Jeff, thanks for taking this time. Congratulations uh, on this uh, milestone in the history of the Canadian Sports Centre here in Manitoba. Look forward to speaking with you again. Thanks for this. Appreciate it, gentlemen. Thank you. He's a member of the Manitoba Sports Hall of Fame. He's general manager of the Canadian Sports Centre Manitoba, one of the uh, genuine legacies from the 1999 Pan Am Games here in Winnipeg. And the Canadian Sports Centre Manitoba celebrating its 20th birthday this week. It was formed uh, two years before the Pan Am Games. And interestingly enough, while most cities end up indebted uh, because of the Pan Am Games, Winnipeg, and this particular organization still uh, gets paid from the Pan Am Games, so to speak, uh, some 18 years after its closing ceremonies. Coming up to 322, that means traffic, weather, sports, all up next on 680 CJOB. I don't think we can hear it on the air, but there's some perpetual beeping going on outside of our studio here. I get nervous when buildings and appliances start screaming at me. It's just an elevator, Greg. All right, we'll be okay. You promise me everything's fine? Well, why do you get nervous? Well, just because usually it's an indication that there's a problem. Oh. Okay, so I, I take these warnings seriously. Yeah. I, I think my washing machine, my fridge, my uh, beverage fridge, fridge yeah, uh-huh. and my dishwasher and my stove all beep at me at a variety of times. And, of course, the microwave. Did you say your fridge and your beverage fridge? Yeah, of course I have a beverage fridge. Come on, Brett. You haven't been over yet, have you, no. since the renovations have taken place? I haven't been over. Pre-renovations, no. so you got to come over. Okay. I always have a cold beverage for my friends. That <laughs> was why. a pledge that I made when we renovated the uh, kitchen. Um, Greg Mackling and Brett McGarry with you on this Tuesday afternoon. And earlier today, we visited with Tara Zekovich from Equifax Canada. Before we do that, and I'm sorry to interrupt you, Greg. Oh, yeah. You want to give some stuff away? We got to give some stuff away, yeah. Okay, I'll stop. I'll stop talking now. You give stuff away because people will prefer that prefer yeah. that for a multitude of reasons. <laughs> oh, no, no, it's not that. It's just we'll <laughs> give this away now so Jeff can can do that and then while you're telling your story. Okay, I yeah. got gotcha. you. Okay, There's fair. a method to the madness. Yeah, it's all madness. Yeah, you're right. It is all madness. Uh, the stuff that we have to give away today... Pertains to Thursday, April 6th at Nashville's at Canadins Transcona on Regent Avenue West, just west of Plessy's Age of Electric. So today's question. In the mid-90s, some members of Age of Electric formed a side band. What was that band called? 204-780-6868. 204-780-6868. Oh, you went easy. In the mid-90s? I did, yeah. <laughs> I, could, I had a second question. I wanted to know. I wanted to know what the first single was, but I can't remember, and I can't find anything that specifically identifies with what it is. It could be one of two songs, so I just figured I'll leave it. Uh, what was that band called? 204-780-6868. So, while we're waiting for our winner, yes. and while this music is playing... Uh, you can tell your story. We were talking to Tara Zekovich with Equifax 
Canada. She's the vice president of fraud prevention and identity. And we learned that millennials are, in fact, the top target for fraudsters. So that got you thinking about something. Well, one of the be- biggest pieces of advice they gave in that report and in that research was to double check your credit card statements and your, and your banking statements. So the other day, uh, I only go to the mailbox maybe once a week now because I'm so busy. <laughs> and so I've got this big stack of mail and I sort it out. Uh, the kids get mail from time to time. Jackie gets mail. And of course I've got mail and it's always bills. So I'm going through the bills and look at this one credit card and I've got mm-hmm. a $500 credit. Mm. So I look at it and I do some calculation. I think I'm looking. I go, oh, you gotta be kidding me. So I accidentally paid 750 bucks on this credit card that only had a balance of about $100, $180. All right, so I get on the phone. On the statement, there was no phone number. You could go online. You could smoke signal them. There was all sorts of things you could do. Calling them was not one of them. So I go on the credit card. Finally, I find a number. Of course, it's so tiny. I've got to get one of the boys to read (laughs) The telephone number to me because I can't read it, even with my glasses on. Dial the number. And so I go through all the prompts and everything. It's like, I just want to talk to a human. I wait a lengthy amount of time. And then, of course, they ask you to put in your account number and your date of birth and all this stuff. And then when the human being comes on the other end, they ask you the same questions all over. Why did I enter it in the first place? You're just going to ask me again. So I ask him, I tell him exactly why I'm calling, and then he disappears. Oh, I'll be right back. Like I asked him a question that had never been asked before. (laughs) So then he comes back, he says, well, you have two options. I like options. Options are good. Well, you can go to the store and you can buy something for the amount of the credit, if you'd like. And I'm like, and then Mike, take it back, and then they'll give me cash? No, 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 then you could use up the credit. Okay, Okay. what's the other outstanding option you have for me? He says, well, we'll mail you a check. I'm like, I like that idea. Why don't don't you mail me a check? He says, yeah, it'll take three to five. And I go, business days? That's not bad. He goes, oh, no, no. Three to five weeks. What? Three to five weeks to return my own money to me. I was blown away, incensed, infuriated, okay. puzzled. I held my temper and I said, you meant three to five days. He said, no, three to five weeks because of what needs to be done. I said, you know, when you send me a statement and you're demanding a payment, like you give me eight days notice mm. to give you this money. And then if I don't give it to you on the day or before the day, I'm in big trouble, Right. Because you you know you're gonna you're gonna mess with my credit rating three to five weeks to give me back my own money. It is ridiculous how they they kind of have you. You know, there's mm. nothing you can do. Nope. They have you by the you know and <laughs> I do know. <clears throat> Ouch. And because uh, you you make the the transaction online or whatever, you can do it instantaneously. Right. I mean, it takes a few days for the credit to appear on their end, but if you need their Need it in reverse. Oh, forget about it. There's no such thing as instantaneous action on this part. And uh, I cut up the credit card. Really? Yep. I won't use it. I won't be. I won't be shopping there anymore. Are you going to shut it down? Because no, because you're not supposed to do that, right? 
No? No, apparently it looks bad on your credit rating. We should have asked because I, I should have asked Tara. I'll email her. But I'm under the impression that when you close a credit card account, it doesn't look good on your credit rating. Really? Yeah, that's what I've heard. Oh, that's fascinating. So you're better off just to kind of wait for it to expire and then not use it. Uh, if oh. you know any differently, 780-6868, send us a text or send me an email, gmac at cgob.com. But that's uh, always the advice that I've been given. You can lower, ask to lower the amount, but it's never a good idea just to outright cancel oh, a okay. credit card. Okay, because I have a credit card that I have paid off and I've been thinking about shutting it down just so the temptation isn't there. But I have a shredder at my house. Why don't you bring it to my house? We'll shred it and I'll provide you with a frosty cool beverage from my beverage cooler and we'll, and we'll, we'll, we'll talk. We'll visit. We'll get to know each other a little better. Sounds good. Uh, in the meantime, we have to congratulate Murray Smith. Murray Smith is going to see Age of Electric Thursday, April 6th at Nashville's at Canadans Transcona on Regent Avenue West because Murray was able to correctly answer the question. In the mid-90s, some members of Age of Electric formed a side band. Not necessarily an easy question unless you know your 90s rock, particularly the Age of Electric. And that band was called Limb Lifter. So... This group was originally formed by brothers Ryan Dahl and Kurt Dahl as a side project from their main band, Age of Electric, along with a third member, Ian Summers, and their self-titled 1996 album was recorded after only 10 practices. Wow. <laughs> so it spawned a few hits, Tin Foil, and the song you're hearing here, Screwed It Up. 346 on 680 CJOB, Traffic and Weather Together, up next. Brett McGarry, Greg Mackling with you until 4 o'clock, and then these two fine individuals will uh, stroll into the studio and take over our chairs and microphones. I, I heard your uh, rant about your credit card. I, too, had an experience with an overpaid credit card when I paid too much and had a balance on there, and I thought, uh, yeah. I thought, oh, you know what? I'm just going to let that ride because then when I buy something, I will feel like I got a discount because I've already... I was about 100 bucks. Right. So I thought I'll just let it ride till I got my statement. And I guess I let it ride too long and they took $50 off for what? Managing my money. No. Yeah. That didn't go over so well. I can't imagine you let them get away with that. Oh, no. That did not happen. Did you cut the card after that? (laughs) Um, Very shortly thereafter. Okay. I was going to say you continued to patronize them, didn't you? Nope. Okay. No. Richard uh, Cluche. The Jets are out of the playoffs now. What do they need to be a playoff team? They need to win more. Wow. that That's like... Uh, I think the team that puts more pucks in the oh, net. There, there you go. go. There, there you go, McGarry. You know what? It's uh, our, the new host hey, of the Sports Sunday, Richard Cloutier and Brett okay. McGarry. I have an idea. All right. Half ice. Half, oh, jeez, you, you got to go there. <laughs> uh, Who knew that was going to cause such an uproar? But let's go topical. back to the full well, ice first. We'll, we'll ask you on our question of the day. It's uh, better and consistent goaltending. It is, as you would say, uh, better specialty teams and, and team discipline. Uh, I think they've got a core of very good players. Now, does it come to coaching as well? I don't think so. I think, uh, but maybe everything's on the table. But we're asking you that question at uh, cjob.com. You are also very passionate, both of you, but especially you, Greg, today, about uh, healthcare wait times. And you shared some of your personal journey on that. 
Uh, one of the people in this country that would like to take uh, the Etch-A-Sketch and just put it over his head and start over again joins us after the 4 o'clock news to talk about the different approach that's needed in this country to deal with healthcare wait times. And Jules, we're going to have some fun with uh, the Video Game Hall of Fame nominees. Yeah, there's a, a list of what should go into the Hall of Fame. So we've been asking some of our compatriots that join us throughout the news what their favorite video games are. So I guess it's only fair. How about you guys? What about you guys? Yeah. My personal favorite video game of all time yep. is uh, it's a game that most people didn't play, really. It's a Nintendo game uh, called Super Spike V-Ball. It was an adaptation of an arcade game called V-Ball. But was the, it like about volleyball? Yeah. But it really? Was, but the, the, the Nintendo version, it was cool because you could, if you... You can make your hand glow, and the, the fat, the more it glowed, Brett the harder you hit the ball. Brett Spike. Brett yeah. <laughs> so, uh, is this exclusively arcade games or like home whatever video you like. games? Like whatever. Well, mine would be Galaga. Oh Ooh. yeah, Galaga. Yeah, I mean, that's a classic, right? Because uh, the rudimentary uh, graphics. Uh, Respectfully, uh, that that was about as complicated as I could get so the video games. I've got some sound effects all lined up for some of our favorites. And Rich's sound effect was super quiet because it's hard to get a sound effect with a stick and a rock. But um, <laughs> I was waiting for that. We oh. eventually found a game that he liked. Oh, really? Yeah. Oh, good. So we'll save that for you Pong. a little bit later on. Pong is one of the nominees. Don't wreck my fun, Greg Mackley. I don't have any notes. <laughs> I'm simply contributing to discussion, conversation. Okay. That's what I do. I, I work without a net. I apologize. Your net had pong written all across it. And I and, and then I, I, and I brought my stick and rock line out ahead of time. Mm-hmm. What else? Is that it? Oh, Jason just texted me a picture of the cover of Super Spike V-Ball. You're going to be Good hanging out with Jason. Jason this weekend, I <laughs> Jason's, think. Jason's a super loyal listener, and he sends us some hilarious stuff. You know what? We will um, also have some Crecom students in, okay. and they have been working on a very serious podcast that is about the Phoenix Sinclair Inquiry. So we're going to find out about their podcast and what brought them to that story and how they've been putting it together and play a little audio sample of that. So this is the future of journalism that we're going to bring to you a little bit later These on. are Red River College communication students. And uh, Global News' is, uh, Brittany Greenslate is working on a, a troubling and gruesome story out of south of Brandon, uh, that gruesome discovery. More coming up on that between 4 and 7 on the news. Uh, you guys are the best hookers in the in the planet. <laughs> so out. I refer you to how we started the segment where you said, "Say the words slowly that's and clearly." Right. Okay, uh, that's right. Ah, we go, then. <laughs> See how it all comes together. <laughs> oh, and uh, this is another one of my favorite games. It's actually on. It's it's on the list. It's one of the finalists. Mortal Kombat. Mortal Kombat from reckon, 1992. I recognize that it's generally played was played before through a much crappier speaker inside the video game, right? <laughs> it's always cracked. It was always broken or something, right? I like that. But it, it's uh, it's nominated. It's one of the finalists along with Street Fighter 2. Arguably uh, two of the most important games. They're all important games looking at this list. It's just fascinating. Maybe we'll have to revisit this topic. Is, is Madden on the list? Uh, Madden football? I don't... You what know was what? the first year for Madden? 97. I don't know, but, but I do know we're out of time. Oh, come on, Brad. Jeff Forte, sorry, Turn buddy. Turn back the clock. <laughs> Greg Mackling is him. I'm Brett McGarry, Jeff Forte, and Master Control. The news is up next.